This is Committable. season one, we had hoped to talk more about options, alternatives to the standard models of treatment for a person in distress. So to learn more about available alternatives, we reached out to Oryx Cohen from the National Empowerment Center. Hi, I'm Oryx Cohen. I work for an organization called the National Empowerment Center. We're one of five peer-run mental health organizations in the country that are national and funded by the federal government. And peer-run means that we all have lived experience ourselves with mental health issues, trauma, and or extreme states, and of course, recovery and healing as well. So it's pretty cool that our government funds actual peer-run national organizations. And we do mostly training and education And our core training is called Emotional CPR. And Emotional CPR is a public health practice that anybody can learn how to do. Uh, It was designed to teach anybody how to better support someone through an emotional crisis. Uh, We've also found that it works really well just to improve communication and relationships. And with Emotional CPR, we see that as preventative. So if enough people are trained, then hopefully we can support people within their own homes, within their own communities, within their own school, wherever they're at. And therefore, we won't need to send them to a hospital or to an alternative. But we do realize that sometimes it gets to a point where people, it's too much for the family, it's too much for the community to handle, it's too much for them to handle. I've been in that position and and therefore we do advocate for alternatives to hospitals such as peer-run respites. And I live in Massachusetts, and we, we have one peer respite in Northampton, Massachusetts called AFIA that I was a part of helping to get started. And a peer respite is staffed, again, by people with lived experience who've had that experience, that altered state or that struggle, and can really relate to what other people are going through. Um, so there's, it's a peer support model. It's helped me personally. I've been helped by a peer respite, and it's helped thousands and thousands of people at this point. Like I said, we have one in Massachusetts. There's about a little over 30 across the nation, which is less than one per state. So it's something that we advocate for. We need a whole lot more of because the need is great. We get calls all the time from individuals, from family members. You know, I don't want to take my son or daughter to the hospital. I, you know, I don't want to go to a hospital, but what, what else is there? And there's just not a whole lot unfortunately. So yeah, we've got an uphill battle, but we're working on it. Can you describe generally what it might be like for someone in a peer respite? Well, I mean, an important aspect is, again, it's staffed by people with lived experience. It's a peer support model, and there's no clinical staff. There's no psychiatrists or social workers. or So the, the clinical aspect is left out of it. Another important aspect is that these are houses in a community, and the goal is to create as much of a home-like setting as possible. They're bedrooms, not beds. You know, when we talk about hospital, you talk about how many beds there are. And that's kind of, um, I guess, a little dehumanizing. And so there's bedrooms, <laughs> and they're actually really nice bedrooms. And 
we try to keep the numbers lower. So it's not like 20 people in a house struggling. It's somewhere between three and five bedrooms. Um, so three and five people at a time. And this is very home-like with nice furniture and decorated nicely with art on the walls. And there's no locked doors, another key thing. So you're able to come and go as you please. It's voluntary. Oftentimes people are in a respite and they may decide to, um, to go to work. You know, we encourage that. Instead of saying, no, you know, you really shouldn't work. You're, you're too sick or whatever. But oftentimes people do. They're going through a crisis, but they still want to go to work or they still want to do something meaningful. They can do that. They can go to a psychiatrist appointment if they want to. They can receive more traditional services if they want to. Again, there's no locked doors there, so they can come and go as they please. With the emotional CPR work, one of the things that seems to be really important is to try and communicate to everyone that there aren't specific types of people who are susceptible to being committed, that anyone on their worst day could be committed. So when trying to bring preventative techniques to people, how do you bridge that gap of trying to explain, we can all benefit from this? We try to blur that line from sick and well. You know, we have this kind of imaginary line between what is considered sick and what's considered well. And if we're honest with ourselves as human beings, we're somewhere along that continuum every minute of every day. It could change from the morning to evening. It could change depending on how old you are or what life circumstances bring you. And so we try to give that message. And, and I think it does come through does come through in the training. People learn that, hey, wow, this isn't an us and them thing. This is, this is a potential for, for anyone at any time. And I think learning eCPR can actually be a way for anybody to learn more about themselves and to help prevent severe crises from happening. You said you're coming at this from lived experience. What was the process like of, you have to navigate the system yourself. You have to be able to get to a point where you can advocate for yourself and then find a platform to advocate for others. What is that process like? Well, I can speak for myself, and I think maybe it's similar for others. Um, it's definitely a process. You're right, it's a process. There was times in my life where I never dreamed I would be talking to you right now and <laughs> have, have this position. And, you know, I, I've been hospitalized three times myself. I've been committed three times. And, you know, when you're on the other side of that locked door, and maybe heavily medicated, I look quite different, let's say. So yeah, how do you get from the other side of the locked door to where I'm at now? It is a process. <laughs> I think a big part for me was discovering that there are other people who have been through similar things and who have made those strides. So I'm not the first, and I won't be the last. So there's people like David Oakes, who is the founder of Mind Freedom and executive director of Mind Freedom for several years. He's one of my mentors. Leonard Roy Frank, Judy Chamberlain, Celia Brown. You know, all these people have similar stories and were written off by the rest of society and have some of the most severe diagnoses like schizophrenia. And for me, my, the diagnosis they gave me was bipolar. Most people would say, oh, you've had the diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar. There's like, you're just going to get worse and worse and then, you know, eventually probably die prematurely or whatever. That narrative is just not true. There's so many of us who have healed, 
who have made amazing transformations. And a lot of it, ha- I think, has been that peer support, having some role models to look up to and who have done it. I've learned so much from these people. And uh, yeah, for me, it was a process of learning, learning about how to heal from trauma. I think that's true for a lot of people. <laughs> so that, that for me was, was key, healing from trauma. And just finding ways to be my best self or be well. And that includes, you know, getting enough sleep, eating okay, <laughs> exercise, having positive relationships in my life, having meaningful work is super important. Another thing I never would have thought would be possible is to, you know, have a family. And now I'm married and I have a 10 and a 12-year-old. So really kind of living the dream. So you've got the emotional CPR, which is the preventative type of work, and you've got some advocacy work. For someone who might be nearing or in the middle of emotional crisis, what path should they be taking then? Who do they call then? Who do they contact? I would look at warm lines. Warm lines can be helpful, and they're usually run by peers. So um, if you go to um, a site called warmline.org, warmline.org that will list all the warm lines in the country that you can call. Many of them accept calls from anywhere. Then you'll have someone who can support you and send you in a, a bit of a better direction. They'll Hopefully they'll know about the resources in your area. Um, you're also welcome to contact the National Empowerment Center for referrals of where to go. But as far as uh, the best option is probably a warm line because you can get some support in real time and they'll they should have access to other resources as well you worked on a documentary uh healing voices is that right yes can you tell us about that documentary so it's important to note that it's uh totally separate from my work with the national empowerment center which is funded by the federal government this is an independent film so i like to say that i'm i moonlight as a a film producer (laughs) but the film came about Uh, I've been doing this work for 20 years now and seeing all kinds of amazing transformations of people, uh, recoveries, and uh, it's really rewarding work, but we've found that our work is still on the margins. We're not really in the mainstream consciousness of how to handle mental health issues. The dominant model is the medical model which is pushed forward by the pharmaceutical industry, which has a lot of money and power and advertising. And that shapes people's thinking and and is where people get their information. So we saw that we were having a lot of success and people having improvement in their lives and just these amazing stories, but nobody really knows about us. So we thought that a great way to get the word out is through documentaries, and especially documentaries that people actually watch. (laughs) So I met uh, a professional filmmaker through my early work uh, with the Freedom Center. His name is PJ Moynihan. Uh, He's an Emmy award-winning producer. We decided to make this film about 10 years ago now, I think is when we had the, the dream, the vision to make it. We wanted to show the world about this movement and hopefully some success stories that we see all the time in a different way of thinking. We wanted to lessen the fear around altered states and madness by doing a documentary 
that was mostly carried by the subjects in the film, the characters. So that was critical. We did have some talking heads and some facts and things, but we didn't want it to be a boring documentary with just talking heads. So we found a few central characters. And I was originally supposed to be more of a talking head or an expert. I was also one of the producers. We did the filming for about five years at points, not knowing whether we were ever going to finish this thing. But the, the benefit of a long-term thing is that you get to see some interesting things happen in people's lives and really see their progression and, and what happens. And it turns out that some very interesting things happened in my own life <laughs> during that time. And I agreed to have some of it filmed. So then I ended up being a central character in the film, <laughs> um, which was not planned. Um, but you never know with a narrative documentary how it's going to turn out. So, yeah, so I'm actually one of the featured characters in the movie. Also, PJ did a wonderful job, and our whole team did a wonderful job. Nate, our sound person, and Ben, our graphics person. It's got its own original soundtrack. It's got our own animation. So the, the, uh, all the art and sound is all our team, and it's turned out really well. We think we won, we won an award, actually, for a documentary at the Boston International Film Festival at our world premiere a few years ago. And so we, we're recognized not only as a social action film, which it is definitely a social action film, but it's also just a good film. <laughs> it's enjoyable to watch. And now it's actually available on Amazon Prime. So you can go to Prime and look up Healing Voices and watch it on Prime. And uh, so we basically accomplished our goal, which we're really excited about. Not necessarily any financial goal, <laughs> but the, the main goal was to have a social impact. And we've had that with uh, Prime now. Um, we're probably, I think we're well over in the hundreds of thousands of people that have seen the film all over the world. So yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you can find more information about emotional CPR and peer support resources on the National Empowerment Center website, powertou.org, P-O-W-E-R, the number two, the letter U, dot O-R-G. And you can find the film Healing Voices on Amazon Prime. I haven't really figured out how to end these bonus episodes yet, so I thought I would close with a psych ward story. Have you ever heard of Magic the Gathering? In my last hospitalization, a nurse found out that my brother and I used to play Magic, and through pure coincidence, that nurse was friends with one of my favorite Magic illustrators, Rebecca Gway. So this nurse brought me in a couple of sheets of signed cards featuring Rebecca's artwork. At the time, I wanted to be a fantasy illustrator, and this was a really inspiring boost during a really dark time. Soon after that, I encountered a new roommate on the psych ward, a man with a terminal brain tumor who sometimes had violent episodes. During one of those episodes, some of my belongings were damaged, including all of the signed artwork from Rebecca Gway. I learned this when I walked past a trash bin after a group session and noticed a mess of mangled cards inside. Being confined to that psych ward was a horrible experience. But amidst a storm of dark memories, that random act of kindness still stands out as one of the most hopeful experiences I have ever had while being involuntarily detained. 
Fools produced by Jim McQuaid and Michelle Stock. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Jesse Mangan. All music is from the song Reasonable by Christopher G. Brown.